Good morning. The reading today is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may, may declare it boldly as I must speak. May God add a blessing to this word. Thank you. Put on the full armor of God. You know, we don't, we don't relate to this probably the same way they did in the first century Palestine where there were Roman soldiers just marching around all the time wearing armor. And so it seems like an appropriate metaphor in speaking to the the people who were under Roman oppression and who were an occupied people in the first century. And it also is appropriate because Paul sees the early church, Christian life in the early church, as a struggle, a war even. In Paul's day, there were several major struggles that directly impacted the early Christian church. First was, of course, the, what I just said, the Roman occupation of Palestine affected Christianity deeply and it, it presented a political threat or Christianity rather presented a political threat to the Roman occupation. It was because uh, among many things Jesus's anti-imperial rhetoric that got him hung on a cross for treason and for uh, uh, subversion of the Roman Empire and that made Christianity and the followers of Christ a political threat to the Roman occupiers. There was a struggle with the Jewish aristocracy and the Jewish world in Palestine at the time, which saw Christianity as a religious threat. Uh, there was this, you know, originally Christians started out, they would go to Sabbath on Sabbath services on Friday night in the Shabbat, and then they would have their love feasts on Sunday afternoons. But after a while, people started, uh, they, they started to have theological clashes. For example, and Paul addresses this, you know, do, do people have to become Jewish in order to become Christian was one of the biggest struggles that we see getting played out in Scripture. And uh, ultimately, the decision was, was no, that Christianity was something completely different and completely separate from that. Well, and that and many other things caused a lot of tension between the Christians and the Jews, and it caused, in, at, at some point, they, around 70, when the temple got destroyed, it caused a very severe split uh, 
between Christianity and Judaism. I'd often wondered what would have, what would have, how things would have been different if, um, if that hadn't happened, if there had been a more um, conciliatory relationship between the the Jews who were the aura, you know, which is where Christianity originated and, and Christianity as it evolved and transformed over time. Of course, it's all speculation at this point, but uh, uh, I've often wondered. There was also a struggle just within the Christian world, that's nothing new, when some insisted on imposing some of these traditions into Christianity and what Paul says, we were freed by grace. So we don't need all of that anymore. And yet there were those who wanted to hang on to the, the, the eating prohibitions and who wanted to hang on to rituals like circumcision and who wanted to set themselves apart from the Gentiles and continue to do that. But Paul begged them, no, don't shackle yourself to that again. We want to open ourselves up not only to the Jewish world but to the world in general, to the Gentile world as well. And that's ultimately what happened but there it was a real struggle there for a long time and and basically caused a lot of church splits which we as baptists are quite familiar with uh, have no problem knowing that and so it's no wonder that paul understood these obstacles to the ministry of peace and gospel of grace as the work of cosmic powers of this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil at work. It was a real time of struggle when they felt that the very soul of Christianity was, was in the balance. And so life was complicated then. And it's complicated now, isn't it? We are no strangers to struggle, amen? Christianity has evolved over these millennia and yet we still have our own struggles More and more are rejecting church, declaring it irrelevant, out of step, and unhelpful. And that's not without merit sometimes. (laughs) Skeptics continually point to discoveries in science as a good reason not to believe in God at all. And, uh, And that's a shame to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And even spiritual people seem to find the church of Jesus less compelling than other paths to spiritual truth. And the biggest struggles we have seem to be not from the outside world trying to get inside, but within ourselves, among believers, among church folks. We cannot seem to get along, continue to infight, continue to split apart and quibble. And then there are the struggles we have within our own personal spiritual life. You know, this is where fundamentalism has a great advantage, I think. Within fundamentalism, that, that type of Christianity, the answers are all pretty black and white. And you, you pretty much ask a question and you get a really good, solid answer and, and you know which course to go. And of course, here at First Baptist, we're quite comfortable with the reality of faith being nuanced, I like to call it, uh, with a lot of gray area. But what it means is that we must really struggle within ourselves to, as, to figure out what is right and what is wrong, both out in the world and in our own personal behavior. And we must take responsibility for that. We must articulate within ourselves what the Spirit is saying through Scriptures, through tradition, through, through our community here together, and through our own experiences. It's not as easy as saying, don't 
curse, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. Not only... not takes a minute, doesn't it? <laughs> not only that, but what are the righteous acts of a Christian in the world we live in today? What are we supposed to do? What are the ideals and principles that guide our thinking? Being open-minded brings with it a lot of responsibility. And what we have is Scripture. The tradition handed down to us from the, our, the founding fathers and mothers, if you will. We have our tradition, our community, the Baptist, our, our long history of being together, struggling through these things in community, wrestling with Scripture to figure out what is our calling in Christianity. And we have our own spiritual experiences that inform us. We've felt the Spirit move. We know God's voice. And we respond. All of these things help to shape our thoughts and our ideals, but it comes with it a lot of responsibility. And so we look to this text today. Paul here who suggests as a defense against those powers that conspire to shake our conviction some things that we should hang on to. Paul uses such words as truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, spirit. Those are all kind of churchy words, aren't they, that, that get thrown around a lot. In fact, they're, they're thrown around so much that they've, they're almost meaningless as we use them. As if everybody understands the full impact of those very rich and meaty words. And yet, I think often we misunderstand what's being said by them. And so I join Paul in looking to these ideals for strength to hold on to one's own faith and conviction, as well as being the bearer of the gospel of peace to a skeptical and hostile world. And yet they also come with a caution, for these same concepts have been at the heart of what ails the church today. Exclusive claims on truth and righteousness, speaking of peace only in the abstract, prescribed formulaic approaches to faith and salvation, and a narrow view of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Those are the negative approaches to these words. These have not, been, these have not made us strong in the Lord, but have weakened us. This has been our armor, but has exposed us to every possible evil. And yet, when we ground these, our ideals, indeed in the full armor of God, when we ground them in that, then we have the opportunity and the experience of knowing the strength that God and our faith and our community and our experiences can give us. So let's Let's explore these kind of churchy concepts and wrestle together with their full meaning and implication in the church and the people of God today. The first thing is this belt of truth business, you know, that we, we put around our waist to hold up our pants and our equipment if you're a soldier, right? This belt of truth. Truth is a difficult concept, I think. Uh, and I'm sure that we could all get the concept that something can be true without being factual and yet as we look at the world through our modern lens it's difficult not to equate truth to factuality truth as fact 
It's actually a rather modern concept. It came into us with the Enlightenment about two or three hundred years ago. Science began to look for facts that could be shown by evidence. And soon, we culturally began to expect that for something to be true, it must be factual and provable as in a scientific method. And all of this gives rise to a literalist reading of the Bible. And in fact, I don't think we, we cannot help but look at Scriptures through this modernist lens. It is the world we live in, whether we want to or not. And so it makes, us, it, makes it difficult to look at this 2,000-year-old, 3,000-year-old document without throwing on there all of our modernist ideas and concepts. And yet a metaphorical view of Scripture has as much, if not more, grounding in tradition and is just as true, even if not factual. This is what Marcus Borg calls a more than literal reading of the Bible. Right? Uh, if we take a metaphorical view of the Bible, the factuality of an event has little to do with its meaning. In other words, believe that Jesus actually fed 5,000 people with two loaves or five fish, or don't believe it, it actually happened. Either way, believe what you like about it, but now let's talk about what it means and what it is, uh, and, and, and it is that what it means business that becomes the life transforming truth for the hurt and the broken world we live in. I don't care whether it happened or not, the truth of it is in what it means and what is trying to be told to us through this story. And it is in that telling and it is in that truth that we find this truth that is not just Christian truth, but ultimately universal truth. Marcus Borg, as you can tell, I'm a big fan. Marcus Borg also states this, emphasizing the miraculous parts of the Bible as fact make the story sterile and unable to touch our soul the way a more than literal or a metaphorical meaning does. And even, even literalist Christians knowingly use metaphorical language when they say things like, I walk with Jesus every day. Well, no one can take a picture and see Jesus walking next to you. We understand metaphor, so I don't understand this getting hung up on a literal understanding. But I say all that to say that truth is grounded in something more than just fact. And when we carry that, those truths with us, the truths that we've wrestled out of Scripture together, truths that we've, we've experienced through our daily walk with Christ, truths that we as a community have come to know together, then we are girded and ready to go. And it will be a protection against so much of what is being thrown at us. Truth can be our most powerful and comforting concept in times of doubt and struggle, but only if that truth finds its grounding in a more than literal reading of Bible and tradition. The alternative is to paint ourselves into a theological corner. We had, a, we had an organist in one of our churches who... who who for them, their faith was, was built upon a, a pretty rocky foundation. That is, a very literal understanding of creation, right? And, and for this person, if God did not literally create the world 6,000 years ago in six days, then the whole thing fell apart. And 
my, my, my fear about that statement is that if that's not true, then, then there's nothing left for this person. And they have painted themselves into a theological corner, and it's a house of cards that comes falling down. If, and, and you're only left with either abandoning your faith or, or making things fit that world concept. And she chose the latter. <laughs> and uh, it, it just seems to me a struggle that puts you into a very difficult place. Breastplate of righteousness. This protective thing right here. Righteousness. Now that's a, that's a difficult word to wrap your mind around. We think of righteousness, we, we think of piety, right? We think of, of really good people who do good things, who don't say bad things, and, you know, righteous people. And I doubt any of us would go, you know, go around saying, well, I'm righteous. How many of us claim that for ourselves? Well, you know, I'm righteous. I'm a, you know, I'm tall, I'm handsome, and I'm righteous. <laughs> we wouldn't want to have lunch with that person, would we? Right? Because people are claiming that. But really, righteousness has little to do with your piety. And it, it merely, it literally means, in the Bible tense, it literally means to be in right relationship. To have the right relationship. The right relationship with God. A, a, a right relationship with God is one where there is deliberate interaction with the holy. Right? We get in right relationship with God by coming to church, by, by opening ourselves up to the moving of the Spirit, by talking to God once in a while, by listening to God once in a while. Right? That's a right relationship with God. And, and notice I'm not even saying, you know, sometimes it's about repentance, but it's not all about repentance. <laughs> Sometimes it is about repentance, don't get me wrong. Some of y'all need to spend a little more time with that. But, <laughs> but you know, and me too. <laughs> but it's not all about that, being right with God. Being right re- with God is about being in relationship with God and having that, having that opportunity to do that. But it's also about, righteousness is also about being in right relationship with each other and with other people. Equity, justice, compassion grace healthy boundaries healthy behavior with one another right these are all right relationship indicators when there is equity when there is grace when there is healthy interaction then you are in a righteous relationship with other people that's very important and our and here's a big one right relationship with our possessions and with the world around us this is this is probably even harder than the other two and it and it has to be said that it is difficult to claim a right relationship with possessions in a world where there is so much exploitation and oppression and it's so rampant and we can easily isolate ourselves from it. I can turn off the television and there is no more oppression. There is no more exploitation. I can just shut myself off to it because I have this nice little world I've invented. And yet, if I do that, can I really claim right relationship with the world? Right relationship with my possessions and my things? For example, if you found out that the toothpaste company you worked for manufactured their toothpaste in India using Fijian slaves that had been captured and forced to produce toothpaste for us, would you not, as a Christian, have out of obligation, get out of that line of work, call your company to task, or expose the realities of slavery? 
Do we not have an obligation somehow? And would not all of us who came to know about all of this need to stop using that toothpaste in order to claim righteousness? I believe these are the everyday dilemmas that we face as followers of Christ and as we allow the desire for right relationship to guide our decision making. It becomes a shield, which is what Paul's talking about. It becomes a shield against so much evil in the world. You, if you look around, oh now I'm getting going. If you look around and you see so much evil in the world, if you look around and you wonder what has happened and our instinct is to, to just hide away, that's not going to help. What is going to help is right relationship with others, with God, and with the world we live in. And that becomes a shield against the evil of this world. Amen? Give me a good one. Amen. That's a good one. I like that one. Righteous Shield of righteousness. That's a good one. All right, let me move on here. The shoes of the gospel of peace. This is a good one. Uh, I like this because it, it has this suggestion. What do we do with our shoes, right? We need shoes so that we can walk. And if we have good shoes, we can run, right? Uh, and it means that, and so it suggests this movement out into the world that the gospel of peace is not something we, you know, we, we hold on to and we kick off our shoes and we pull that lever on our lazy boy, right? And we sit back and let the shoes just sit there. No, we got to get that gospel of peace out into the world and we got to carry it with us peace in uh in in the bible is wrapped up in this in this other word shalom which is more than just uh just you know lack of of conflict but it's about again that's about being in right relationship it's about having that peace of equity that peace of the presence of god and the and and a relationship that is equitable and like righteousness, this is about relationship. It's about balance in the world. It's about being a source of compassion and comfort, not a source of strife and violence. And we put on our shoes so that we can carry that out with us and take it out into a hurt and broken world. The shield of faith. Hebrews says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is, this is what is defined what faith is defined as that that kind of hope right faith is about hope faith is about looking forward and thinking there's got to be something more than this and then living as if it were a reality living in the hope of all of that what give us what gives us this kind of confidence and conviction i think that's personal spiritual experience you know why I believe in prayer? I believe in prayer because I've prayed and things have changed. I've prayed and it's made a difference. I've prayed and, and things have gotten better. I've prayed and I've felt God's presence. Uh, you know, things don't always magically happen, but something always happens. Amen? So, I, you know, and it's because of my experience, right? And if, if you have faith, and you think back a little bit about how you've, you've thought things were going to work out and they did work out, and you start to believe that God is really doing something bigger than just what's going on in your life, you begin to easily allow yourself to live in hope and live for 
a better future. You experience those things out of prayer, out of Scripture, out of community, like we've been talking about. The helmet of salvation. Salvation. Boy, that's a fighting word, isn't it? That's something that really splits up the church quite often. Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? Who can I, who can I give it to? And who, who can I keep it from? Right? Those are, the, those are the big questions here. But, you know, salvation literally means to be saved. And so often this is reduced to a formula. Say the, say the Jesus prayer, say the salvation prayer, and bada bing, bada boom, you're saved. Now, you know, go and sin no more. As though it were this religious ceremony like circumcision. There you go. Move along. <laughs> it's not like that, right? Salvation being saved is, is something that's kind of situational, I think, for, for the most part. But in truth, the notion of salvation, it's an ongoing journey of growing into our higher selves, of becoming the woman or man of God we were created to be. It is our state of becoming that is salvation. And you know what? The other thing is, I don't, it, has, it has almost nothing to do with where you go after you die. Let me just say that. I mean... Uh, you know, it, it had so much of the God, Jesus spends about that much time on where you go when you die, and all this much time on how you live out salvation in the world you live in today. Amen? Amen. So we can look back and see that our relationship with Jesus saved us from going down a dangerous and unhealthy path, and we are the people today because we were saved. I look at myself and I think, man, who would I be? I mean, I'm pretty bad now. Who would I be without Jesus, without, without the church, without faith that has shaped me? Uh, you know, you wouldn't want to, I don't think you'd want to know me. I don't think I'd want to know me. We can experience being saved any moment from the struggles and the temptations and the frustrations of our life today. I count on Jesus to save me all the time. I count on the Spirit of God to be, to be pulling me away or helping me see a better way every day. We can knowingly count on the God of salvation to continue to point us toward wholeness and, and life in the future. In other words, Jesus saved. Jesus saves. And Jesus will save. Amen? Okay, finally, the sword of the Spirit. This is a good one. This is the only thing mentioned here that is both a defensive weapon and an offensive weapon, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, this Holy Spirit and Word of God, they're so closely connected. It is by God's Holy Spirit that we read these wonderful words of life in the Bible and find them to be meaningful in our life today. And that's why they're called the living Word. But you've got to be careful. Again, the sword can be defensive and it can be offensive. Boy, how many times has the Word of God been used to cut someone down, to, to be offensive, to be abusive, to be hurtful and harmful, just like a sword can be. You know, I'm not a big gun guy, but you know, I understand that it's what you do with that weapon that is most important, that's most significant not the existence of it. Same with the Word of God. It can be used for good. We've seen it used for a lot of evil. So you've got to be careful with that. So Paul encouraged us today to put on the full armor of God 
as we struggle every day with what it means to follow Christ in the world we live in. As we are willing to grapple, and I really mean this, to to wrestle, to grapple, to, to struggle with these concepts of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and the Holy Spirit, then our struggle will be one that yields to joy and to the abundance of grace and to living out the full and abundant life that God has promised us. Let us pray. Loving God, we are so grateful that we do not stand on our own, but that You offer us and You invite us to put on this armor of protection that we might indeed be ready to be in this world no matter what comes, no matter what happens. Uh, Help us to indeed be fully prepared and equipped to be Your followers and to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world we live in today. We ask this in the precious and powerful name of Christ. Amen.